So she is sort of smoothly learning how to use this new thing in her life. And Nobu's message on the answering machine could not be more awkward. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everyone. It is good to be back talking about another play today. Um, if you've been following along this season, you uh, uh, kind of will have noticed that we had a bit of a theme going. Um, we've finally broken ourselves of that theme <laughs> this week. <laughs> There's no music or dan- no dancing. I mean, there is some music and, and there's some references to dancing, but it's not the same. Right, there's, it's not in the this title. This is definitely not a musical. This is definitely not a play about dancing dancing which our previous two were we've kind of come to like a much more uh like a sort of a more traditional piece of just standard psychological realism in a lot of ways yeah yeah we're just 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 doing like a nice nice sort of family drama sort of play um and we're because today we're talking about the wash by philip Kangotanda. yeah the wash is is a great play it was recommended to me a couple of years ago as part of a group of people that read scripts and talk about them together that i am part of um was unfamiliar to me at that point and kind of quickly catapulted to a play that i think about a lot because of just how good i think it is how carefully structured how well plotted the characters journeys are and how specific the message and the cultural situation is and i i'm somebody that really thinks specificity is so so important in all art but really especially drama yeah, yeah, this play definitely is is written for a purpose from a community for a community, but also to broaden the access of that community to to the kind of broad cultural vernacular. So it's it's it it's has a very I, I like I like that specificity bent that you were talking about that 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 it's like it's it's made for a a particular time, a particular place, and a particular people. And and I think we'll we'll get into that when we get into the conversation. But this play I think is one of the best examples of like how unspoken moments can Mm. really drive drama, how action and prop work even more than dialogue. And we often think about dialogue as kind of the core, especially when you're reading plays, because dialogue a lot is all there is, you know, to some degree. But boy, action on stage is the core of what happens in drama. And this play is such a good example of that. Yeah, yeah. As I, as I was reading it, I was like, "Well, we're gonna have our comments about prop work again." On yeah. This oh one, my gosh, just... <laughs> the prop work in this script is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's super good. Super excited to get a chance to kind of jump into the conversation. Before we do, though, want to take just a second and thank our patrons over at Patreon.com/slash No Script Podcast. Thank you all so much for making this show possible. We love getting to do this show. We love getting to talk about theater's best scripts with each other and with all of you out there on the social medias and in podcast land. Excited that we're kind of clipping away at whatever this is. I think season nine at this point. So uh, super grateful for all that. If you're looking for a way to help out the show, whether you're a longtime listener or a first time listener and just already love us, which, wow, thanks. Um, <laughs> Patreon.com slash podcast is a great way to do that. Uh, you'll find a number of different tiers over there. The lowest one being just $1. And at that just $1, $12 over the co- course of the year, you get access to patron only post, early ac- access to scripts that we're doing 
doing. Um, there's a number of other different tiers of membership that you can see when you go and visit Patreon. But thank you once again to all of our patrons. And if you're looking for a way to help out the show, patreon.com slash podcast is a great way to do it. We will see you over there. And now, back to the script. Jumping in. Hey, so here's an important thing for us to say because it's and this is sort of in reference to last week's episode as well. Is that this this play, like we've talked about, is a very specific play. It has these really specific cultural elements, just like uh, Dancing at Lunasa did in the last episode. Obviously, from very different cultures, but but such it is, right? And Jackson and I are not from either of those cultures. Uh, we really believe in our mission to celebrate like all kinds or, or lots of kinds of drama, even the kinds of drama that are not really for our communities per se and are going to have elements that just go over our head. So that's kind of our forewarning on the front end. There are going to be things that we don't understand, that we leave out, that we misunderstand about the script, uh, that, that, you know, check out other people talking about this play as well. We love to talk about scripts of all kinds, and so we're we're going to talk about this play, we're going to celebrate the work that's done in this play, but we're certainly going to make mistakes. And I know personally, I'm definitely going to make mistakes in pronunciation. I mispronounce, like, names that I hear all the time in my community. <laughs> I'm a terrible pronouncer of names so I will we'll do our best but that that's going to happen and we apologize for it on the front end yeah yeah worth the time just to say that to note where we're coming from note our our, our desire and intention to uh to give attention to one of the best plays in in the theater lexicon so we'll, we're going to continue to do this play but definitely look for other voices if you feel we missed something let us know we'd love to keep talking about this play after the podcast is done with all of you all right, some brief context about the playwright and the script before we hop in. Uh, Philip Kahn Gatanda is a new playwright to the podcast. He's a third-generation Japanese-American. Uh, was born in California. He's in his 70s now. Um, and his first play was produced in 1978 by the East-West Players. This was a person that did not grow up thinking that he was going to be a playwright and kind of came into it through, through inspiration from the people people around him. His first play was called The Avocado Kid, and the East-West Players, which is a, a, a solely Asian-American theater company, was the company that produced it. Now, that's a fairly big deal, because the East-West Players are a big deal, and for them to stage his first play, uh, I think really speaks to the kind, the level, the skill of dramatist that he was, even right when his career was getting started. And the success of The Avocado Kid uh, kind of spurred him on to keep pursuing this thing. Since then, he's had plays produced by uh, all of the really major theater companies in the country. We're talking about the Asian American Theater Company, the Northwest Asian American Theater, the Pan Asian Repertory Theater, Berkeley Rep, the Manhattan Theater Club, the American Conservatory Theater, Playwrights Horizon. He's also started to accumulate just tons of awards for the uh, quality of playwright that he is. Uh, the Pew Trust Award, the John D. Rockefeller Award, the Little Wallace Award. He's won an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, the East-West Players awarded him a Visionary Award. And then he was awarded in 2020 in a ceremony that you can watch on 
Zoom, actually, the 2020 Legacy Playwrights Initiative Award, which is designed to uh, sort of cement the legacy of these older playwrights and bring attention to their works. Of course, at that point, he was about 70 years old. He's a fascinating guy beyond the the undergraduate degree that he got in. Um, I'm not going to be able to remember the specific you know, kind of arts field that he got his undergraduate degree in, but it was an arts degree, basically. He also has a law degree from the University of California, the Hastings College there. Uh, he studied pottery in Japan with a famous Japanese uh, pottery maker. Uh, he's done a bunch of independent films. He's a director. He's in some opera. He's had films entered in the Sundance Film Festival. He uh, is the, uh, he's a UC Berkeley Arts Center fellow in theater. He's a Sundance Theater fellow. Um, he's part of their film fellow program as well. For a while, he was the vice chair of the theater program at UC Ber- Berkeley. So probably one of the better playwrights you've never heard of, assuming you've never heard of him. Uh, he, he's had a huge impact in the theater community, um, and his plays are taught oftentimes as part of like those dramatic literature classes that uh, you know do a lot of good by focusing on non-white playwrights. His plays often appear, of course, in Asian American theater anthologies, but they're also starting to appear in more and more just sort of standard textbook anthologies as American theater is learning that we can't just have white men in these anthologies. Right. Yep. <laughs> so his <laughs> plays are some of those that are starting to be included in those as well, just for the sheer quality of their work. The Wash is really his first play that got this level of national attention um and if you know a play by philip ken katana it's probably the wash yeah yeah so so that the dude uh the the kind of got some attention got got a film going on a short film i believe like a 90 minute film yeah so this play is uh, it's the third part of a family trilogy um that, that's uh starts with a song for a nicey fisherman and then fishhead soup which i think is a spectacular title for a play is the middle one and then this is sort of the the capstone third piece of this trilogy um it's interestingly it's sort of potentially based on some real life stories that he's collected from the japanese american immigrant and generations of immigrant families communities um Apparently, he's he has a friend whose elderly mother actually left that father and started a new relationship, which Jackson will tell you is very comparable to what happens in the play. Um, but the the story didn't like get around their community very much. It's a leaving your husband is not something that's done in those communities, as I'm sure that we'll discuss. And then there's another story that sort of fed into his his retelling of, of that experience. Uh, a writer, apparently, uh, whose ex-husband still comes to cut her grass even after they got divorced. It was just part of the rituals and routines of their life. So you'll see how those two things sort of blend together into the story of The Wash. Um, Speaking of The Wash, The History, uh, 1985 had its world premiere at the Eureka Theater in San Francisco. It was also at the New Plays Festival, a workshop format uh, at the Mark Tabor Forum in Los Angeles. It had a production in 1987 by the Northwest Asian American Theater. That's a theater in Seattle. Uh, in 1988, it was adapted into a film. In 1990, the Espa Theater Company in New York did it. 91, again at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. Uh, the Studio Theater in D.C. has done 
it. The uh, theater in Tokyo has done it. The East West players, of course, have done it. They're in Los Angeles. A uh, company in Honolulu has done it. Um, George Dekai appeared in a number of the early productions of this script, playing uh, the the guy that the Masi character, Jackson will tell you about them, uh, ends up, uh, that becomes her new partner after the divorce. And George Dekai famously played that role for a while. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, so this is a play that's had a, what are we, almost near 40 year of life and, and goodness, still yeah. remains <laughs> a play that, especially when you're talking about Asian American theater, is at the very, very top of those lists for its representation, for its just, again, I said this in the intro and I will say it probably a bunch more over the next 45 minutes or so, but I just think this play is so good at the way that it uses unspoken action moments to drive the plot forward it is just it's as good an example of that as you'll find in all of theater yeah and and not only drive the plot but also like raise tension raise stakes raise like the audience's blood pressure all the good stuff so (laughs) i'm excited to get into the conversation i'm going to take just a minute and give us a brief synopsis so if we haven't seen it the play or read the play we're all on the same page together And just as Jackson is doing this synopsis, just keep in mind that the way this play is written, the vast majority of the plot, as Jackson is going to describe it, like it does not occur in the dialogue. I just want to highlight that again. (laughs) Like nobody talks about the vast majority of things that you're going to hear as Jackson describes the action of this play. It's just not discussed. They discuss all kinds of other things and the plot is happening behind the other things that they discuss. It is such good writing. (laughs) All right, buckle up. Here we go. Um, So uh, this this play centers around the Matsumoto family, and that family is made up of Nobu, Masi, and Marsha, and Judy. Now, this family is in uh, kind of the the disintegration period um, of of their family. The uh, Masi and Nobu have uh, started living separately from each other um, about about a year-ish ago, a little under a year, actually, at the start of the play. Um, So, like, maybe seven-ish months ago, they started living separately. Um, However, that doesn't stop them from interacting. Masi regularly comes over and still helps Nobu basically live. Um, She does his laundry. She brings groceries. Um, They still uh, interact occasionally. However, they are living separately. Um, The kind of start of the play, we see uh, them... uh, The the play takes place, just real quick, just to give you the setting, uh, takes place over the course of about six months of this family's life together as it slowly disintegrates more and more. Um, But uh, the start of the play starts, and uh, we meet Masi and Nobu. Masi is coming over to do the wash, uh, hence the the title of the play. She kind of comes and picks up the laundry, brings clean laundry, brings groceries. And you can sense right away um, through the unspoken stuff going on that there is tension there, that there is kind of a disconnect in experience um, between them. we follow uh, uh, some of the story out of there to uh, a restaurant, a Japanese restaurant owned by Kyoko. Um, and uh, she and her two staff members, Curly and uh, Chi, or I'm sorry, Curly is the only staff member. Chio is, in fact, a neighbor. Um, are kind of having conversation about the running of the shop, but also the fact that Nobu comes in pretty frequently. Um, And uh, uh, Nobu uh, shows up that day. He brings back 25 cents that she accidentally, Kyoko actually accidentally gave him a little bit too much change. 
Um, and uh, what what sort of begins to develop is uh, some sort of a relationship between them uh, through the course of the play. You uh, Kyoko um, uh, kind of takes care of Nobu. Nobu uh, shows up. He eventually starts getting his meals for free, which is something that Curly, who is the cook, kind of makes fun of Kyoko for. Um, but you start to like realize that there's a bit of a relationship forming between uh, Nobu and Kyoko. It's a little, little, uh, not really sure exactly how much of a relationship it is. In fact, later on in the play, that will come up again. But you, you, that starts to develop. You also see a developing relationship between Masi and Sadao. Now, Sadao is a, a friend of hers. He is a, a widower. He lost his wife, um, I think, maybe five-ish years ago. Um, and so they, they've met each other through family friends and um, are, are starting to see each other more often. And uh, you start to see more and more of Sadao. She, she, he's over at her house. Uh, he gives her uh, a fishing pole and says that he's going to take her fishing and uh, wants to kind of teach her how to fish, which is something that Masi brings up that Nobu did f fish, but never taught her how to fish or never invited her to go fishing with him. So you start to like pick up more and more that there's been this, that uh, the kind of long relationship of Nobu and Masi um, has slowly... Uh, slowly begun disintegrating uh, long before the actual separation. Um, you also pick up that there's there's other elements as well that is affecting the family, especially the way Nobu shows up to the family. Um, uh, Marsha, the older daughter, is a dental hygienist. Um, she uh, kind of serves as a go-between between the parents sometimes. Uh, she kind of tries to organize ways to try to bring the family back together, at least at the start of the play. Um, much to her chagrin, it doesn't work. Partially because the younger daughter, Judy, is kind of been ostracized from the family for marrying someone who isn't Japanese. Um, she's married James, who is uh, an African-American man, and they have a son, Timothy, um, something that Nobu is vehemently against, to the point that he won't let James in the house, has not seen Timothy yet, who is a baby, um, and uh, is, uh, has uh, caused Judy to feel very unwelcome in their house. So there's a dinner scene where they all try to, Marcia tries to gather them together, Judy doesn't show up. Um, uh, Masi comes, uh, Nobu, there's, there's a fight over how the coffee is made. Nobu, uh, likes a lot of very particular things, um, and does not accept, uh, Masi making the coffee for him, but, uh, there's a big fight, Masi leaves, and we kind of get this, this beautiful scene that I'm sure we'll talk about <laughs> at some point of him trying to make his own coffee, makes it, goes to take a drink, and he can't, he can't drink it. There's something, he, he kind of realizes the gravity of what's happened, perhaps, and Marsha watches him, uh, as he does so. Um, uh, a number of attempts uh, happen to try to bring this family back together or to like craft a new family for uh, for for uh, Nobu to be around, especially Kyoko spends some time. She finds out it's his birthday coming up. She tries to get his whole uh, or at least his daughters together um, to to celebrate this birthday. Uh, she has her her uh, her uh, cook curly make up a make up a cake, and uh, uh, Chio comes as well and kind of has some music set up. I think karaoke machine set up to have the party, and they surprise Nobu with it. Um, but he realizes that Judy is there and uh, it doesn't enjoy the surprise. Uh, it definitely falls sort of flat. 
Um, and then, then we just kind of uh, see the fallout of, of the rest of the play as we continue to wonder if the family will get together and become more clear that they won't get back together. Um, we see uh, Masi and uh, Sadal have a lot more scenes together. There's a great scene where they both talk about how scary this is for some reason, um, for diff very different reasons. For Sadao, it's scary because he's lost his wife before, so to love someone this much again, to have the pain of possibly losing them again is is pretty great. There, the, He's in his, I believe, in his 60s. Masi is in her 60s, so they're kind of finding love again. And for Masi, it's scary to be this happy, is what she says, to be this, um, to, to, to have this much resonance with, with uh, Sadao. It's one and of you, the sadder moments of joy in the play. Yeah, like she's expressing yeah. how much happiness she has in this new relationship and how much joy it fills her with. But we're all sad because like the subtext, again, what's unsaid is in my 60 some years of life or really, whatever, how long they've been married, 40 some years of marriage to uh, Nobu, I've never been happy. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's like yeah. both and at the same moment. Very sad. And you're very happy for her at that moment. Mm hmm. Yeah, to, to sum up the action of the play, and we'll get into specifics, though, eventually we're, uh, Masi and Sadao have kind of been keeping their relationship secret from her family, um, from Masi's family. Slowly, though, the girls find out about it, and pretty much the only person who doesn't know about it is Nobu, so uh, Masi says, I'm going to go tell him. She tells him, he freaks out, has a, has a visceral reaction and a physical reaction to the point that he almost gets violent with her, and he gets, he gets physically violent in the space, and she, get, she asks him whether he's going to hit her or not. And that kind of stops the, the the kind of tirade of his. She goes away, and then we kind of see um, see the aftershocks of that. Nobu tries one more time to try to demand essentially that Masi rejoin him, um, but that doesn't work. Um, we see the kind of ripple effects out to uh, Kyoko. We see their relationship slowly kind of taper off. He's stopped um, taking calls uh, from her. He stopped coming to the shop. We see the pain of uh, Kyoko and uh, his turning her down in that way in such a kind of kind of a, what we would call ghosting essentially. Um, uh, and uh, and she also shares a bit of her story that she lost her husband and that um, she has some pain around that and that he never treated her this way. So you kind of have the slow um, dissolution of that um, relationship. Finally, we get finally to the end of the play. Uh, Masi has asked Nobu for a divorce. She's uh, she's continuing to be with Sadao. Um, we have a, a, another scene. Again, Nobu is not uh, taking this well. Um, he's He had that sort of visceral, violent reaction initially. He There's a shotgun on stage, and in one of the rare times that a gun appears on stage, it ends up not being fired. But he does sort of carry this threat around for a while of either hurting himself or of hurting Sadao. Um, but that does not come to fruition. He comes over to Masi and Sadao's house, says he wants to meet him, puts the shotgun away, unloaded um, in 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 her in her living room essentially. But then does not ultimately meet Sadao. He can't bring himself to actually meet him. The final scene of the play is Masi bringing the wash for the last time. Um, she uh, comes over. She brings over some supplies. There's some uh, kind of conversation between them, uh, just sort of in passing. Um, but then there's this, the decision moment that she makes of she goes to, like, the, the dirty laundry is sitting on the table, and she picks it up, 
makes a decision, sets it back on the table, and in some really beautiful uh, uh, stage direction lines that we will talk about, um, about how they make the decision, uh, she decides to set it down, and Nobu can tell, though he has not looked at her or really even spoken to her fully this whole scene, that she is setting down the wash and will not be back to bring to do it again or to bring more. He sh this is the end of their relationship. And that's kind of the end of the scene. There's some beautiful light work that happens, some nice tableau that happens where we kind of like see Nobu in the dark. We see the wash in this in this bit of light. Um, uh, but that's the sort of fade out of of both the, their relationship and the play. Man, so much to say about this play. OK, yeah. So we so we could spend the whole time talking just about props easily because this yeah. play is as good a play at the use of props as there is out there, just like it's just as good a play at the use of action as there is out there. But I want to talk about like the title action driving the play first. This this weekly routine of bringing the wash. She uh, Masi comes to their old house. Nobu's the one that is living in the house that they raised their kids in. Um, and Masi has moved to a new apartment. But she comes by and she comes. She brings the clean laundry. She then picks up the other, the dirty laundry from around. That's part of the tradition, the routine that they have established is that Nobu doesn't even put it in a nice bag for her. Yeah, and send yeah. her on. It's like, she has to pick it up and find it at one point. She tells her daughter, like, can you tell him to like, make sure it's all there? Like, he got mad at me one time because I couldn't find a pair of his underwear that was like under the fridge. Like, uh, so, so that's part of it. And she has to collect the dirty laundry. She often does the dishes and then she goes and the next week she comes back and brings it back. And it is this establishment of this routine, this tradition, this thing that happens between this couple that is splitting up, which ultimately pays off so beautifully in the end scene that you just described. Yeah, yeah, it's this it's this sort of um the like shared dependency of a long-term couple. Um however we we kind of see well that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing. Like like it's it's the sort it's the sort of thing that you just assume will happen like in, in a long-term relationship that is just assumed will happen. Um however we slowly it's it serves as the catalyst for us to realize that there hasn't been shared responsibility in the relationship for a very long time. It's just Masi taking care of Nobu <laughs> almost all the time. Um, and as slowly there's, there's even some uh, like there's, there's some scenes where they actually do talk about it, but other scenes where they flash back and have memories of moments together um, where we, we learn more and more about how, uh, how little Nobu showed up to Masi throughout their, throughout their marriage. Yeah, the history of their marriage and their life comes into the play in some really interesting ways. But just to stick with the wash thing for a minute, because I do think that it, it is easy to uh, to villainize Nobu in this play. And that the wash cycle that they go through is like, uh, you know, it, it makes him out to be the, the total jerk villain completely because he's he does not even picking up his laundry. He just expects his partner who's separated from him to do his wash every week, puts so little effort into it, still doesn't treat her well, despite the fact that she's doing this thing for him. And also, I do think, I mean, Nobu is not 
made out to be a very good person in this. I mean, we're, we're not feeling like the decisions that he makes are rational, reasonable, kind decisions really towards anybody in the whole play. But at the yeah. same time, I do think we are intended to empathize with the struggle. And I think for him, and this is some of what Phil Cantano talks about, this is some of what this play is about. It's just impossible to let go of the tradition, to let go of the expectation. It's impossible to change. And some of that is that he is an older person, an older man, and this is the way his whole life has been, and suddenly everything's changing for him all at once. And some of this is the legacy of racism and oppression that has existed being immigrants in America that has, or or second-generation immigrants in America, that has impacted them. These are two people who were in the relocation camps, and they discuss that quite a bit. So some some of it's all that. and some of what Philip Cangatondo, I think, is doing is, and he he this is a quote from him, he describes how traditions which worked before are subject to the winds of change. It's this idea of things necessarily changing. And so as much as the wash is a tragedy, and it's only really a tragedy for Nobu, everybody else is better off, uh, it, it is the tragedy of being unable to change. Yeah. Yep. There's, there's... There is a sort of generational story happening in this play about uh, to the to the point that like the character descriptions note uh, the different generations in them. Um, and and you have this the 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 yeah, the second generation uh, 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 story of Nobu and Masi and Sadao kind of offered in relief of each other or uh, not relief. of That's a confusing way to put it, but you have them side by side and can evaluate three different people's experience of, of them trying to grow into this change in comparison to Nobu. Sadao is, is like, um, I don't know the exact right term to use, but he's he's more open. He is comfortable sharing his feelings. Um, he is uh, like willing, willing and and even excited to share uh, one of his passions with uh, Masi, which um, doesn't seem to be the way Nobu approaches things. He seems to be more steeped in a, in a tradition that allow that prevents him from sharing sharing at all. Really, I think is like sharing emotions, sharing uh, passions, sharing um, sharing. In, in the sort of excitement of especially like his daughter Judy and her new baby. So you have the you have all the three of them, especially of that one generation, um, kind of providing um, different ways of grappling with the the hardship of being immigrants um, in in a new place. And and I mean the the comparison between Nobu and Sadao as partners for Masi is like Sadao is, is much kinder, like you say, much more open. Generally seems to want Masi around rather than just need her around. As yeah. So that that I think is is very clear. I think a more interesting comparison is how Nobu and Masi handle this extreme moment of change in their lives. Both of them, I feel, are given a chance for happiness or for a fulfilled life, even given the change. I mean, I don't think at any point the the couple's going to get back together. Like, that I think is past. And the question of the play is, 
can Nobu and Ken Masi find a way to move forward in a positive direction in their lives given this break that has happened, given this major change that has occurred in their lives? And 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 Nobu's potential relationship and Masi's potential relationship could not go more differently. And some of that is just based on their personalities. Again, there's a great scene. I'm going to describe the same sort of thing over and over again because it's throughout where action and props tell that story. Nobu has, we've learned throughout the play that Nobu has been calling Masi's apartment. And he's calling because he is lonely and wants to know and wants to control where his ex-wife is and 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 all this stuff, right? So he calls her, and, and so she finally, at some point in the play, hooks up an answering machine. Again, the, any piece of technology that is appears and is used in some way is part of this this sort of story of change that is happening. But Masi hooks up her answering machine, so so it's the first time Nobu's called, and it hasn't just rung endlessly. There's an answering machine there that has her voice on it. And so you get this scene where Nobu is, is finally has to put a message onto the answering machine. At the same time, contrasted is this scene where Masi is practicing this fishing equipment that Sadao's given her. Brand new technology to her because uh, Nobu never let her go fishing with him. It was always something he did and she was left behind to take care of the house and blah, 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 blah. So you get this relief. I, I like your actual word relief in the more artistic visual sense of yeah, relief yeah. where Nobu is interacting with a new technology at the same time Masi is interacting with a new technology and Masi is learning to fish really well she has this confidence she has this natural ability and she she catches a bunch of fish later in the play so she is sort of smoothly learning how to use this new thing in her life and Nobu's message on the answering machine could not be more awkward (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 He kind of goes back and forth. He's trying to remember what his number is, trying to like figure out what his message actually is. Like this is a person um, he's been married to. And he's like, my name is no, I have this right. telephone number. My name is this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's very awkward. It was like, uh, like when Brianne and I, my partner, Brianne and I were first married. I think I sent her a message where I like put my name, like, blah, 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 Jacob at the bottom. And she was like, I don't think, why are you doing that? <laughs> you probably don't need to <laughs> And do it's that. like that uh, to the extreme. <laughs> and so, but there's this contrast, right? That tells the story. Action and props tell the the, the larger story of the play in a specific moment. How do these two people handle the change that is inevitably happening in their life? The other the other piece of prop work that speaks right into that story is the kite that uh, kind of regularly appears throughout this this the play. Um, so so Nobu uh, makes kites. Uh, we we figure out or he tries to make kites. Um, we figure out that his his father made kites and that he's kind of tried to learn the method from his father before him. And and throughout the play, this kite is like sitting on the coffee table and interacted with fairly frequently. Um, either either over a meal or while the TV's on. Um, there's this 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 kind of framework of a kite being put together. Um, and it and it kind of stays throughout the scene until finally there is, I believe, in the kind of physical um, uh, visceral uh, moment of of her telling him that she is. Uh, uh, wanting to have a relationship with Sadao and needs a divorce, um, Nobu breaks the kite, um, kind of picks it up, shatters it, um, and 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 uh, and leaves it in pieces. So you have in in that this uh, kind of physical representation of what Nobu is trying 
trying to do, what his uh, values are. He's carrying on this tradition from his father. Of of making kites, of trying to hold it all together to the and 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 to no avail either. <laughs> you you find out from from the other characters that these kites don't work. They don't fly. Um, they don't. They, he can't figure out how to make them fly. But nonetheless, he continues to try to make them. Um, and in that sort of climactic moment, um, you kind of see the side by side of. He's been trying so hard to make this thing work, or or maybe maybe not trying all that. I don't know. That's it's complicated. Relationships are complicated. But but he's he's been putting all of this um, effort into holding on to this tradition, into holding on to his relationship with Masi, and it can't work. Um, it's it's not working. So so you have the shattering of the kite, and then also the kind of gift of that kite. Um, to or a we, different kite, a different that's kite, not broken. It's a little a unclear. Toy kite. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But there is there is again a sort of generational moment where um, eventually he uh, makes up with Judy enough and holds Timothy um, and gives him a small toy kite. So you have you have the sort of like through line of this prop, its presence, him working on it, but it's shattering. Um, uh, that is kind of following along with the relationship as they're negotiating it. Right, and and the kite that he is building throughout the play is described as being very large, and the kite that is gifted to Timothy at the end of the play is described as being small. So they're different kites, and it's unclear. And and weirdly, I think it's actually important. I'd be interested to ask Gatana what he, what he intended in this moment. What what where the kite comes from that he gives Timothy? Is it uh, the kind of kite that he built in this traditional kite making way that he learned? Is this a kite yeah. that he went out and bought because that part of the story tells a very different story at the end and i think Mm -hmm. i could you know sort of live into both worlds because tradition is nuanced right and and while nobu in this play i think i talked earlier about how we're supposed to empathize with him he is definitely punished for the way that he treats the people around him he's left alone he's left unable to get his own happiness it's you know it's sort of like the the creon at the end of antigone like creon's the bad guy but your heart goes out to him with the suffering at the end and that definitely happens in the wash so he is punished but at the same time, not all traditions are are bad or or even negatively described in this play. Like the tradition of the sort of way that he learned to make kites from his father who grew up in Japan. If that's a tradition that he's passing down by gifting one of those kites to Timothy, that says something about the story and about the nuance. If he, at the end of the play, is sort of forced to go out and just buy a kite at a store that will fly to gift to his grandson, that tells a different story about how he's changed, who he is, what what is happening with tradition held at the end of the play. And I don't I don't know which it is, which I, th- I think yeah. is interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's specified. It'd be interesting if it's intentionally unspecified um cuz you kind of get to play with that a little bit. Um but yeah, it'd be an interesting thing to to cuz I agree if 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 it is like a new kite or like something of a different um uh model, it, it not only like um, says something about him just needing to go out and doing it and kind of succumbing to it. It also says something about um, his his like continued kind of stretching of the olive branch toward 
uh, Judy and Timothy, which is a slow process. It's something that I didn't focus on in my synopsis too much. From the start of the play um, to the end of the play, there is significant movement on his relationship to Judy and to Timothy. Um, and to the point that the music I in the play... I don't know if I would describe it as significant, but there's some I movement. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, sure. But like from, from not wanting, from never wanting to see them, from never sure. having met him to holding him and singing him a lullaby. Yes, um, I think true. that's significant movement. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's, that's a story that's uh, uh, very familiar to a lot of people, I think, even outside of the specific culture that the play is from and for this uh, sort of older generation of folks who were raised with a specific belief about people from different ethnicities and the way that those behaviors and beliefs are forced to change in our far more multicultural and intermixed society that we live in nowadays. And, And there's actually, interestingly, there's some criticism from, and this, of course, this criticism is levied against people like David Henry Huang all the time. And there is some criticism towards Philip Kangatanda about this is his most popular play. And is it just because it's the least Asian American, quote unquote, of the Hmm. plays in the sense that it has, it has resonance for a lot more broader group of people. Uh, that, that criticism has been levied against Katanda for, for what he wrote in this play. That's not something that I'm certainly qualified to comment on, but it is something that appears when you read and study about the play. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and, and the way that it, like, kind of accesses common themes and stuff to write, that, that, that's, that's an interesting, interesting comment. Also, the way that it, like, um, I don't know, the sort of imaginative space that the just the setting of it, like, all three of the different... Um, uh, there's there's three different zones that the stage directions call for of having the house, um, Nobu's house, uh, Masi's house, and Kyoko's restaurant all all next to them. It kind of as far as like uh, uh, drawing in audience or like finding ways for people to be excited by the play. This is one of the one of the big ones I think is this kind of imaginative side by side tableau work and setting that kind of draws you in and creates a really an imaginative way to engage these people's stories. Yeah, well, and and the setting is part of the story too, right? Again, the way that he uses the physical space and the unspoken actions to tell the story because where do Masi and Sadao, right? They're in a relationship too, but that relationship takes place in Masi's apartment, in her home. Nobu and Kyoko's relationship does not take place in Nobu's home. You need another setting for that relationship to move forward because Nobu would never have her back to his house. That house is the house for him and his wife, who he believes will come back to him and go back to the cooking and the cleaning and such at some point. And of course, that doesn't happen. Masi is given this sort of freedom at the end of the play. But you have to establish another location because Nobu goes out into Kyoko's zone for that relationship to take place, whereas Sadao is able to come in to Masi's zone for that relationship to take place. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's a that's a, a good comparison, too, because there, there, a couple scenes do occur um, in kind of the liminal space. There's like a, a, a pretty substantial scene that happens uh, while... 
uh, uh, Mossy is like hanging out the laundry to dry on a on a clothesline that has to happen outside of the space. But the space of Kyoko, we haven't talked much about Kyoko yet, um, and about the kind of the the this her space and the and the role that she plays in 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 the play because it's it, I mean it's a substantial one. It's like a you know a third of the set is her is her restaurant and and I feel many like of the she scenes has are. a lot more weight in the play than Sadao does, even though they yeah. maybe serve the same functional role like structurally for the two main characters. Yeah. I think she gets mm-hmm. more development and stage time. She certainly gets more. Yeah, I agree. She gets more stage time and she gets a scene um, in which uh, the two main characters, if we're calling them that Nobu and Masi are not in um, where she and uh, Chio and Curly are playing poker together. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, none of the, none of those characters are there, um, to, to, to interact with. They're talking about them. Certainly doesn't pass the Bechdel test by any means. Um, but, uh, but they're, they're, they have their own scene, their own separate, uh, interaction. And I think that's, I mean, that's the other sort of, um, welcoming into a broader story that we get. We get another uh, story of of someone who is trying to navigate um, finding finding love after losing their their partner, losing their spouse. So you get you get uh, another. I, I don't think that's in the same sort of. Uh, I'll use relief again in the same sort of relief as the kind of triad of Nobu, Masi, and uh, Sadao is, but. Um, but it, it certainly adds another another uh, panel, another prism into the experience. Yeah, and and a more um, I think a, a a different view of 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 what Nobu could have. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, not that not that he would have her by any means, but I just mean that that a different view of the life that Nobu could have. Yeah, uh, she is someone who. Um, looks i think she still believes in a little bit of his his kindness and his sort of general decency and there actually is the the moment where he brings the quarterback and uh, the, the brings the quarter back hey uh college football is starting everybody i said quarterback <laughs> <laughs> totally side note uh no right, hey side uh, note. when he brings the quarter back to her there is a sort of uh, like, oh, maybe maybe he's a good guy at heart. He wouldn't just hold on to this money. Of course, her friends then later say, like, well, all he really did was ingratiate himself to you, and now he gets a bunch of free food. And, and so I think the audience is left to to handle their interpretation of that on their own to some yeah. degree. And, and certainly Kyoko's view of him changes throughout the course of the play. She realizes very quickly... Uh, the 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 way that he's going to treat her going forward, and and finally at the end of the play, it's actually her friends calling Nobu on her behalf and her telling them to stop. Like she's not yeah. going to be ignored and then just expected to come back and give him massages again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I agree that she kind of like figures it out. I think basically at the birthday party is a pivotal moment for their relationship where she realizes that that there's 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 a there's an unmovability in some of uh, uh, Nobu's uh, uh, worldview that will not be overcome because I think uh, the one of the scenes after that is actually a pretty extended scene between her cook Curly and and Nobu where Curly is like grilling him like doing the best friend grill on someone basically. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, you don't, you don't really get another scene between Nobu and, uh, 
and Kyoko after that. You get a couple of tried phone calls. You get a couple of missed moments. You get a couple of moments where Kyoko is telling her friends to stop calling him and to stop trying to reach out because it's not going to happen. Um, but but that's it. It just kind of like fades away. And the birthday party, the, the way that the birthday party scene ends is another great example of how, yeah. and this is a quote from Gotanda, what's not said is as important, if not more important, than what is said. And and I, I gotta be honest, some of the things in this play that go unsaid that are so crucial, I, like, at reading it, I'm like, I wonder how you would communicate very clearly what's happening to the audience inside these characters' heads. Like, what what could you do in the staging and the acting to tell this important part of the story when there are no words to tell it? So the example is the birthday party, right? And so the, uh, 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 Kyoko's thrown this surprise party for Nobu. She's invited his daughters. And both the daughters are like, I don't know that that was a good idea. <laughs> but okay, <laughs> we're here. So uh, uh, And of course, as the audience, you're like, not a good idea. This right. cannot end well. <laughs> right. So Nobu comes into the restaurant they'll jump up and yell surprise and then totally in the stage directions there's a description of how nobu sees his daughters and that makes he's very uncomfortable with them being there and he does he he can't he's not going to blow out the candles it's like he's sort of frozen or or even you know frozen would maybe be the more sympathetic view deliberately being an ass (laughs) would maybe be the less (laughs) sympathetic view he's somewhere in the middle i'm sure and he can't blow out the candles his daughters are trying to you know she threw this party for you participate seem like you're having fun and he just can't do it but there's nothing ever said out loud about the fact that it's his daughters being there that make him so clam up and freeze and just can't move forward with the situation and then like you described there's really no more scenes with the two kyoko and nobu together that night is really the end of their relationship yeah yep yeah, that that so that scene kind of holds that that tension and that sort of us slowly learning that there's something to do with his daughters and 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 they're being there that that kind of shuts him down. Um, and and we we've talked a little bit about Judy. We, we're coming down to the end of the end of the end of our time frame, but I want to give just Marsha her little bit of time um, because she is a character that is the old the oldest sibling. She floats through a couple scenes. It's kind of hard to nail down exactly um, uh, uh, where 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 her kind of gravitas in the play is. But there is one scene that it becomes quite clear. Um, she and it's and it's and it's a rare scene where things go said rather than unsaid. She sits down, or actually, um, uh, uh, Nobu sits her down and says, tell me about this Sadao person. Tell me about what's going on. How are they? This is after Masi has, has told uh, Nobu that she wants a divorce and that she's in a relationship with Sadao. And very quickly, um, uh, uh, Nobu uh, reaches his comfortability level in the conversation. Um, and and uh, Marsha pushes past it. Um, she, she says stuff about Sadao, but then she also brings up the history of, of uh, Nobu and Masi's relationship. And she says, why, why weren't you there for her? Why didn't you, why didn't you do these things? Why didn't you teach her to fish? Why didn't you go out with her? And finally, why didn't you just ask her to come back? You didn't even have to like fully come off of your throne 
phone and capitulate and say I'm sorry. All you had to say was just please come back, and you couldn't do that. And all throughout this, Nobu is saying over and over, I'm done, or I forget the exact line, but like, that's enough, that's enough, stop talking, we gotta not talk about this. But Marsha has this scene where she finally says what has been unsaid the whole time and kind of draws into light the tension that this family has gone through for a very long time with this sort of repressed, we don't talk about it sort of dynamic that Nobu tries to spearhead. Yeah, she she gets the big telling Nobu off speech that, uh, you know, in a different kind of play, maybe Masi would have gotten, but it finally comes to her. One more thing about that scene that I think is so interesting, because it's just, it comes after the scene, right, where uh, Masi tells him, like you said, that she wants a divorce and that she's seeing somebody else. And again, that could be a crucial turning point in the dialogue for the characters, her asking for a divorce. It's something they haven't done all along, but the way the play is structured and written, it doesn't end up being that big of a moment because the moment quickly becomes about the fact that she's seeing someone else. So the real moment where the play is going to change forever is the moment at the end of the play, which happens entirely unspoken, where Masi decides to leave the dirty laundry behind. It is as beautiful a moment of staged, uh, 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 on stage, as I think you'll ever see in a a piece of psychological realism. The, The character makes this choice to change their lives forever. It's totally unspoken. It's beautiful, and it's painful, and it's so... I I think it's so hard to create a scene in which the audience is simultaneously celebrating and cheering and can't, you know, it's like you could imagine like a soccer stadium full of people (laughs) screaming in joy, goal, (laughs) when Masi leaves the dirty laundry behind. It's like, hell yeah, get out of there, good grief. (laughs) And at the same time, we understand the suffering and loneliness, and there is that empathy for Nobu left alone, somebody unable to change, just left behind. And he's punished for it. It's not like I don't think Gatan lets him off the hook. I mean, he is responsible for where he is, but there can still be empathy for the suffering he's caused himself at the same time as... We celebrate the fact that Masi is leaving him, is not going to do his laundry anymore, and is, is going to have this happy relationship. And one thing we didn't get a lot of time to talk about today, Jackson, is the way that the relocation camps and the stories and the oppression experienced there uh, comes into their kind of their present moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. You you slowly get to hear more and more kind of in the in the sort of desperate begging at the end of their relationship. Nobu fesses up to quite a bit of stuff, and one of them is how much that affected him and how much that affected their family and how much that uh, kind of has spurred him, spurred his relationship in the world. Um, his, his time that he was kind of, he and also his, his, uh, um, Amasi's father, um, uh, getting sent to relocation camps, getting their, their farm, uh, Masi's father's farm was taken from him. The uh, oppression and injustice of that had long-term impact on him, long-term impact on the family that he, like the way he chose to cope with that, his coping mechanism was to lock it away, to, to not deal with it. And, 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 you know, valid. Um, but, but, and eventually he, he, he is able to say that, but it's kind of too late at that point 
for him to recover the relationship with Mossy. But but all of that has had uh, has had seismic ripple effects throughout their and their relationship and and the way he's been able to interact as as uh, an, uh, a second generation immigrant in in this new place. Yeah, there there's almost this again uh, unspoken claim that yep. that if he had been able to so basically Mossy's father along when they were uh, when they were like young told Nobu that he could set him up like to own a store anything he wanted really there was enough money in the family I guess to make that happen and then the relocation camps happened and of course Asian American families basically had everything they own their land their farms their businesses just like stolen from them and they were forced to sell them or get them literally taken at at crazy low prices so a a whole generation of asian american families lost their wealth due to the the relocation camps uh and so that meant that masi's father could no longer buy nobu the store that they were going to set them up with so again there's this unspoken implication that like i would have been happier and thus our marriage would have worked out if your dad had been able to keep his promise but for the relocation camp things. Now, again, if that's something just handed to the audience, there's no characters that reflect on, I don't know if that's really true. Right, <laughs> Some right. of this might be you and not the circumstance, but some of it might be the circumstance and the way it changed and formed who you are. That kind of nuance and complexity is handed to the audience to grapple with. And I just love the way that so much is not laid out in an xyz pattern yeah or exposited or or handled through through extensive dialogue scenes or stuff like that it's handled through silent moments and props and it turns out we spent a good chunk of the podcast actually talking about the props which is great because um this this play handles it really really well it it and that scene of like true catharsis at the end where the wash is left like catharsis in the classical sense both greek theater and japanese theater use in like classical japanese theater deploy catharsis um to to kind of have this sort of pity and fear moment and and you get that in this play in a really impactful way through the use of leaving the wash behind um so so we're we're sadly <laughs> quite at the end of our time but we'd love to keep talking about this play with all of you uh you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter at the username at no script podcast we also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com find us on any of those sites if you have been in this play seen this play read this play watched the movie um and have something you would like to add to the conversation we'd love to keep talking about the wash with you Absolutely. If you've liked this episode, if you like any of our other episodes, please pass us on to your family and friends. Anybody, you know, that likes theater, that likes stories, scripts, any of that kind of stuff, I think they'll enjoy this podcast. They can find us on Podbean where we're hosted, but of course more easily on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and now YouTube. You can also like us on Facebook to get the new episode just appearing in our feed every Monday when they are published. You can click and play from there so until next week when we are talking about another of theater's best scripts i am jackson nikolai i'm jacob mann christensen thanks for joining us for no script the podcast